Psalms like the one we just read are tough. It's all this stuff about beating the enemies, crushing the enemies. But I do think there are moments in our life when something cries out within us and we want victory. There's something going on and we want victory. Obviously, later on today, there's a football game. The Bills are playing. And and it's interesting, you know, walking into church today because you hear these snippets of conversations all over this team and that team and how they're playing and who's doing what, how the game's going to go. And there's so much interest on a part of a lot of people. And maybe you're not like super into football. It's okay. Uh, But I think you can understand, at least in the sense that you know others that are, there's this sense of we want to win. Now, let me just say something and put it on the table. Football doesn't matter. Okay, I just want to, I'm a fan. I love the game, love watching it. Okay, it doesn't, light of eternity, really in the light of not eternity, just the here and now. It doesn't really matter. But we want victory. Like, so we can identify with that. On Sunday mornings, I always check the news because maybe something happened. Last night, Los Angeles, 10 people were shot and killed at a party, and another 10 people injured. And I'm assuming the number of killed will probably increase again. And, and it's just, it's one more. Just one more time. And there's something, I hope, I know there's something within me, and I think there's something within all of us. We want victory. And, and I think we can identify with the psalmist that is crying out, bring victory. This family watched their loved one pass away. And there's this hardship as you see this person you love there. You want what's best for them. You're hurting. And there's a sense of this, this right here, this that we're going through, this isn't right. This isn't how it should be. And I don't think in that moment we would say, I want victory, but, but there is something to that. We want something that takes us through this situation to something far better. For Phyllis, for those hurting, we want victory. So what kind of victory do we want? What kind of victory actually makes a difference? And I think it's one of the reasons we cheer for things like football or other things, because we want to feel that sense of victory, or at least there's always next year. I think it's because we want to feel that way in our day-to-day life. In the big things that we have no control over, it's easier to grab onto the small things and say, ha, they won, or they will next year. It's harder in the difficult situations of our world and of our lives sometimes to know what the victory really is. We've been walking through a sermon series called Focal Point. And and it's, it's a sermon series on all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. I don't know what I was thinking. It's not easy. Actually, it's Bill's fault. You recommended this. I'll blame you. 
Thank you. <laughs> it's not about me. Um, <laughs> but thank you. But here we are, I would say, the pinnacle of Scripture. Last week, we talked about the teachings of Jesus. And, and the whole point of the sermon series is that everything in the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus Christ. Everything in the New Testament looks to Jesus Christ, relies on, is based in who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus is the focal point of all of Scripture. He is not and never was plan B, God going, well, I guess all that Jewish stuff in the Old Testament didn't work. Let's try something new. No, God had a plan from the beginning. Before Adam and Eve were even created, Jesus was the focal point. And so we looked last week at at what Jesus taught, and we looked at how he taught, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent is this idea of get ready, turn around, you're going the wrong way, something big is coming, and then he says the kingdom of heaven has come near, and we talked about the kingdom has come near because Jesus is the king. And those saved by Jesus Christ are in the kingdom. The kingdom wasn't about just changing this world and rearranging the furniture to make it look better. It was about people being saved by Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom that has come near and one day will come to full fruition when our king returns again. But there's one teaching about Jesus that I tried to hold off on because I wanted to save it for today. And you see that in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark records something new that Jesus began to teach. He says, He, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, most of us, Heard this many times. Jesus Christ, we, we put crosses on our walls. We put them on pedestals outside. I think you can see it. I can't. We wear them as jewelry. It's beautiful. It's so cute. We have very ornate, decorative crosses. We know what he was talking about. I don't think we can comprehend how shocking this was. For him to say that he was going to die, that he would be, that he would suffer, be arrested, falsely accused, and die. In fact, it's so shocking that we read in verse 32 right after this, Peter pulls him aside and he's like, hey man, Jesus, cool it. Could you imagine telling the Son of God, the one through whom all things have been created, I think you're wrong. Jesus, um, let's go about this differently. This isn't going to play well with the focus groups. Um, Can we maybe change this language a little bit? And just to make sure that we don't miss how big of an issue this is, we then have Jesus' response to Peter. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. I don't know of a much stronger rebuke from the Son of God. This isn't, Peter, I'm not sure you're really completely understanding this. Peter, you're a little bit off. Let me help you out here. This is, Peter, you are going in the complete wrong direction. You don't understand. Now, I want to be careful 
We know from the rest of Scripture, the rest of the Gospels, the way Jesus treated Peter was with love and grace and patience. But Peter was a bit of a blockhead, and Jesus knew this. He knew how to deal with him. And Peter's going to get it eventually. But this passage here helps us to see that what Jesus says by saying that he's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise from the dead was so shocking to them. And that along with everything else we talked about last week, this becomes a fundamental part of what Jesus taught as he prepared them for what was going to come. And there are two super important elements here. And I think they're blatantly obvious. Number one, Jesus is going to suffer and die. Number two, Jesus will rise again. Peter thinks this is wrong. Peter's picture of what victory is going to look like does not include Jesus suffering and dying. It probably included something like Jesus on a white horse with an army behind him, conquering the Romans, overthrowing them, and make life wonderful for the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And the rest of Scripture goes on to tell us that day will come. But there's something far more important that Jesus needs to do first. And Mark includes a very important word that we cannot overlook. Four letters, must. The Son of Man must suffer. He must die. And he must rise from the dead. So I want to look first at Jesus' suffering and death. How? How is this victory? This made no sense to them, and I think we need to be careful that we don't misread this or reinterpret it in our own way. What did Jesus mean by suffering and dying, and why is this important to his ultimate victory? God has prepared us for this moment, and this is what I hope to, and I've hoped to get across to you through this sermon series. These themes do not just pop up in the New Testament all of a sudden. They've been there all along. I think I've shared with you, I grew up and I love my family and I praise God for how I was raised. I was raised going to church and I don't know if it was the church's fault or just because I wasn't really paying attention, but I got this idea growing up that the Bible was just a loose collection of stories, random stories put together to help us understand how to be good people. And I remember when I got to college and we started studying broad swaths of scripture and I went, whoa, this is one story. Somebody actually planned this from the very beginning. And so I want to go to the beginning because we begin to see what sets up the cross all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in this garden. Out of everything in the world, the world is created and it's awesome and it's great, but he makes this super great place, the Garden of Eden, and there he puts Adam and Eve and there he meets with them. How amazing. No sin, no sorrow, no death. All of their needs are taken care of. Boy, how many times do we say, God, if you just took care of all my needs, I would follow you. Adam and Eve are a pretty good example. That's not true. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God commands them. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. 
oh, and we read that and go, oh, God, that's not fair. That's, that's a bit much. I mean, the punishment should fit the crime. You steal some fruit, give some fruit back, done. What we don't understand is that God is the author and sustainer of life. And what he has offered to Adam and Eve is, look, you can trust me and follow me and go my way and I will give you life and give you life eternal or you can go some other way. And I don't care what other way you choose, any other way other than God's way is not life. Which means it is death. And so right from the beginning, we are told there is a consequence, a natural consequence of sin, that sin brings death. And so sin enters the world. And throughout the Old Testament, as we looked at it, we looked at Adam's descendants, and it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Just in case you don't get it, death has entered the world. And we studied all the way through the Tower of Babel and the confusion that happened and the time of Noah. And God calls Abraham, and it looks like things are going to be so much better. And God establishes this relationship with Abraham and his descendants, but then the Israelites end up in Egypt. And they're suffering. And they're dying. And the Egyptians are brutal, working them to death, stealing and murdering their children. And God talks to Moses and says, I'm going to judge the Egyptians. I'm going to bring judgment and punishment for their sin, but something amazing happens. God tells Moses and the Israelites that when he passes over the land to bring judgment, God is going to do something so that his people do not experience the judgment. Judgment for sin is coming, but God is going to provide a way out. They are to kill a lamb, spread its blood over the doorpost of their house. And God explains in Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And there we have this first inkling. God has provided a way that instead of the punishment of sin falling on people who deserve it, that sin can be put on something else and it can die in their place so that they can live. All of this is preparing us for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a major theme all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. God provides a way for something else to bear the punishment. The author of Hebrews sums it up in this way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he talks about the Old Testament law. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Somehow, something else can shed its blood in the place of the one who deserves to die. This is such a fundamental part of Jewish religion in the Old Testament as they build their tabernacle and eventually their temple, and God gives them a system of sacrifices. God gave them all these sacrifices so that when they sinned, rather than them bearing the punishment of the sin, they could go to the tabernacle or temple and sacrifice an animal. And God would count it as payment for their sin. Once a year then on the Day of Atonement, they would gather together and sacrifice would be offered for any sin that somebody might have overlooked. 
Because God knew in his mercy they weren't going to catch it all. There were things that they did that were wrong that they wouldn't even know. And God provided a way for them to be saved from that. There were so many requirements. And if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, this is usually where people quit. They get into the Old Testament, into a book like Leviticus. And God bless Chris for uh, teaching an adult Sunday school class on the book of Leviticus. So if you want to know what Leviticus is all about, go to Chris's class. Um, because, wow, I can't believe he's doing it. But usually people get into a book like Leviticus and their eyes glaze over and they, they go to something else. Because we read about these clean and unclean things and what it meant for something to be clean and holy versus unclean and sinful. And all of this was related to their culture. Everything had to be done according to God's instructions, not just however they wanted to do it. This is why when we come to Mark 8.31, Jesus said he had to suffer and die. Because as much as God gave his people grace in the Old Testament by providing another way, they had to repeat these things over and over and over again. It was never enough. It was never an ultimate victory. And then Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, looks at the cross. And he says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus must go to the cross. Because we need a Savior. We need something to pay the price for our sins. Otherwise, it has to be us. And God in his mercy and in his grace provided his son, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, God puts the sin on him and he dies in our place and his blood is shed. And all of the Old Testament teachings about how clean the tabernacle had to be, how spiritually clean the priests had to be, how everything had to be done appropriately are fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, perfectly able to offer the perfect sacrifice which was himself. The whole Bible points to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it prepares us for this. Jesus, the Son of God, also called the Lamb of God, was arrested, falsely accused, condemned to die, and nailed to a cross. And God takes our sin and the punishment and consequences of our sin and he puts it on his son and he dies. They had waited for a king to come. That was their idea of victory. Our king's going to come and make everything better. Our world, our life will be changed. And when Jesus talks about dying on a cross, they're thinking that doesn't fit. That's not victory, Jesus. And then when he actually dies on the cross, they're terrified. What now? Where is our hope now? I love in John 19, as we're reading the account of the the cross in John 19, as he's hanging in the agony of the cross, nails in his hand, nails in his feet, for hours struggling to breathe. We're told that he knew everything was finished. 
that the sacrifice was paid. And then a little later on in verse 30, he cries out the last words, it is finished. What was finished? Everything the Old Testament pointed to that was necessary for our salvation. All the payment of our sin was finished. It was paid for. It was done. It is finished. The victory of the cross was complete. Peter's reaction to Jesus' suffering is so much like ours. Nah, that's not the way that should go. God, I've got, I've got some better ideas. I'm just going to be really spiritual. I'll just be really good. I'll overcome my own sin that way. Jesus must go to the cross. Because only in Jesus do we have ultimate victory over sin. But he said he must suffer and he must die. But there was something else he talked about. He talks about the victory of the resurrection. Because if we stopped here, we might be tempted to think that salvation in Jesus is just a do-over. Okay, the slate has been wiped clean. Now go do a better job. But that's not enough. In fact, I think the Old Testament tells us over and over again, that's not enough. Sinful people return to doing sinful things. So what's different about the victory of Jesus? Jesus doesn't offer us a new chance at our lives. He offers us a completely new life. Paul sums it up in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And and can I just say, so many Christians are setting the cross and the resurrection to the side and talking about a whole bunch of other stuff as first importance. Paul gets right to the heart of the matter. First importance. Christians, this is what you need to know. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another word for Peter, and then to the 12. He's like, he died, he rose again, and a whole bunch of people saw it. This is truth. It actually happened. And he wanted the Corinthians, and he wants us to know the Son of God died and rose again. Why was that so important? that he rose again. Often at funerals, I preach out of John chapter 11. It's an appropriate setting. It's it's a funeral. There's a funeral of Lazarus, Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. He's close friends with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick and he decides not to go. This is the son of God who walked around often healing so many people. He decides when his friend is sick not to go. He shows up and one of the sisters, Martha, talks to him. Says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Understand, I think the implication of what she's saying there. It's like Jesus... Where were you? Why why didn't you save my brother? There's also incredible faith. I know. I know if you had been here, 
He would not have died. And then she goes on, but I know, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. It's like, Jesus, friend, where's the miracle for us? And it's interesting, Jesus answers in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, verse 24, I know. I love her faith. I know. In the last day, he will rise again. There is this hope, this distant hope that one day Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. And we have that hope in Jesus Christ. And it's a profound and great hope. But Jesus redirects her hope from the future to the present to himself. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Understand what he's saying. He's saying the resurrection is here. Martha, this thing you're hoping for is me. Jesus Christ, the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. This is the importance of Jesus rising from the dead. Not only does it prove that he is who he says he is and that he accomplished what he said he would do, saving us from our sins, but it is also an offer of new life. Not just you being better, but you being recreated, made new the way God intended. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. All throughout scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to live in relationship with him. Whether it's the Garden of Eden, Abraham and the Israelites, the the prophets and through the exile and God bringing them back to the promised land, there's this call, come and be with me, live in relationship with your God and your creator. But there's always Something missing. There's always something that we can't overcome through anything that we do. I think one of the things we see throughout the Old Testament, we don't just need better instructions. We don't just need to turn over a new leaf in our life. We don't just need to try harder and put more effort into it. We need a Savior who has died on the cross and risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the victory of Jesus over sin and death. It is the hope that we can cling to when our world is falling apart. It is a victory that is greater than Bill's games. It is a victory that's even greater than our society working things out and figuring it out on their own. It is far more supreme than that. It is an eternal victory, a new relationship with God, a new and better payment for sin, new life for us made into new people through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is our secure hope and our victory. In those moments that we say, God, where's the victory? to be able to hold on to the cross and the resurrection and say, there it is. Nothing can take that away. Peter thought that Jesus was saying that Jesus would be defeated, that he was going to lose. 
But Jesus was actually declaring the greatest victory ever. The cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection in the empty tomb are the greatest victory ever. And they are the focal point of all of Scripture. God providing you a way to be saved from your sins, made right with your Creator, live a new life in Him. I pray that we don't miss this. The world tries to make life about so many other things. Victory is redefined as just be happy, just seek what makes you happy, and yet people seem to be more miserable than ever. Well, just go your own way. Do what makes sense to you. That's exactly what the serpent said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it didn't work then, and it still doesn't work. In fact, it is the path of sin, and it leads to suffering and death and defeat. And so sometimes as Christians, as religious people, we sort of make it a little more religious. We'll just... Try harder. Be a good person. Do religious things and you will be great and God will love you and accept you because you have become a better person. Turn your life around and God will accept you. Or others say, well, let's just fix this world. We will turn it into what God wants it to be. And then that will be victory. And friends, if I could say lovingly, I think to that Jesus Christ would say, get behind me, Satan. That is not the focal point of Scripture. That is a whole lot of guilt that will be heaped upon us that we can never live up to. And rather than living in victory, we will constantly be living in defeat. To be a Christian is to accept and trust in the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place on the cross and rose from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. That's what it means. All of the other stuff, all of the good things we're to do, all the acts of obedience, all the acts of worship, it comes from that. But it's got to start with Jesus. The cross and the resurrection are the focal point of Scripture. So let me ask you today, what are you hoping for for your victory? If the Bills win tonight, is your life really going to be different? I'll answer that for you. No. Have fun. Watch the game. I will be too. I'm not trying to heap guilt on you for watching football. As long as you don't enjoy it. But (laughs) Kidding. But keep it in perspective. Maybe it's something more important. Well, if I get that job, if this happens, if the government changes, so-and-so gets to be the president, then we'll have victory. If your victory is not centered on Jesus Christ, his cross, and the resurrection, it is not true victory. And it never will be. This is the focal point of Scripture. And I pray it's the focal point of our faith and of our lives. And if it's not for you today, It could be. Jesus died in your place. He has paid the price for your sin. 
He has risen from the dead and promises eternal life to all who believe. May today be the day that you accept that in your life. Trust him and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we need victory. Sometimes we live in defeat for so long. We cry out in the words of the psalmist with our struggles and our agony. And then there are times we see you work and we cry out in adoration of you and gratitude. And so often we take our lives back into our own hands and do things our own way. And God, I pray that you would forgive us so often for being satisfied with lesser victories. Things that take the place of the one truth that will truly bring victory to our lives. I thank you that even though we were lost, you sent Jesus, your son, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. I thank you that through his resurrection, we can be made new and live in right relationship with you. And God, I pray if there's anyone here that's trying to find that victory in their own life and they're trying so hard, turn their eyes toward you. May they see that it's already been won, it's already been accomplished, and it is being offered as a free gift. And God, maybe some of us here are forgetting that in our lives. And we're living with an anxiety or a guilt, and we need to remember we have a Savior, and the victory has been won. Thank you, Father, for the victory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.